Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our scripture this morning is the fourth chapter of Amos. Amos chapter 4. And our subject is prepare to meet thy God. Amos, the fourth chapter. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor and crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the days shall come upon you, that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I ceased, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained on, and the peace whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt, your young men have I slain with a sword, and have taken away your horses, and I made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, because I will do this unto thee, Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains, and created the wind, and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness, and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Last week we saw in chapter 3 that after deflecting their criticisms away from himself, Amos resumed his prophecy of Israel's judgment. Amos said there in the last chapter that there was going to be little left of, uh, by which Israel would be remembered. And he compared the, the aftermath of the foreign invasion to the scant remains of a lamb killed by a lion, a piece of gristly ear and 
a couple of bones would represent all that would be left of Israel. Now remember that Amos is prophesying when Israel is at the peak of its prosperity, power. Uh, it was a wealthy crossroads at this point <coughs> in history, very briefly. Not only would their places of worship be destroyed, but their homes would be destroyed. He specifically mentions summer houses and winter houses and houses of ivory, describing these people had more than one home. They were investing their wealth into real estate, and they had places where they could spend summer and places where they spent their winter. And uh, uh, these houses were elaborately furnished but they represented injustice. They, took, they represented the wealth gained by injustice that was put into um, capital. And so these capital improvements of Israel really represented oppression, violence, and theft. Well, here in chapter three, Amos continues. In the beginning of chapter three, he turns his direction in a new uh, direction. And this condemnation at the beginning of chapter 3 is really shocking because it's direct, directed against women. Now we expect men to be singled out as liable to judgment because they're covenant heads. Particularly this merchant class which is oppressing the poor uh, was a male-dominated group. But these women here are called kind of Bashan because we're not familiar with you know, these uh, old-fashioned terms, we can miss what he's referring to. Kine are bovines, cattle. And Bashan was famous for its pastures and production of fine livestock. We know these were women because they um, are referring to their husbands as masters, and that wasn't a servant because a servant wouldn't demand more from his master. So these had to be women. So he's referring to these women of these merchants as uh, these cows of Bashan. Um, cows of Bashan were prize cows. Uh, Bashan was an area of great, um, of very luxurious pasture, and it was known for its fine livestock. So these were prize cows. Some commentators refer to, think that he's referring to the women as fat cows. That could be the, you know, which is an insult, and it could be the illusion, but the problem I have with that is it's too easy to take somebody that is judged in Scripture and saying, well, they must have been unattractive. They must have been, you know, really disgusting people, you know, in appearance, and that's why, you know, God's judging them. Just like when we have in a children's story, uh, the villain is ugly you know it's just kind of a, a person you would recoil from uh, where in reality villains are often very attractive they make themselves attractive you know Satan is often makes himself an angel of light so it's too easy for us to think of villains as people that we would be offended by just to see them or their personality uh, in fact many evil people are, are are beautiful people they're attractive people they're charismatic people uh, it was widely reported that Hitler was a powerful personality and it had an extremely charismatic presence. You've heard, I've heard this said about other men, uh, world leaders, uh, some of whom haven't been good 
been that they were personally extremely charismatic. So the cows of Bashan were prize cows. These women were prize women. They were desirable women. One commentator said instead of saying, you know, fat cows, these were voluptuous, desirable, like prime cattle like you would see in a, you know, um, um, a, a cattle show uh, that, that would win the prize. These were voluptuous women. These, and verse 11 refers to uh, their masters. So these wives were those, who, uh, the wives of those who oppressed and stole from the poor. The cattle of Bashan were the most desirable cattle in the land. So these women were the most desirable women in Israel. A modern expression might, more to the point, might be they were trophy wives. And this makes more sense because the rich merchant class probably had the pick of the most beautiful brides in Israel. You know, rich men tend to attract beautiful women. They're attracted um, to them. So you might say these women were the, the real housewives of Samaria. They were in the mountain of Samaria in the high places. They were the upper class. They enjoyed the good lives their husbands provided. But as we've seen, much of this um, book of Amos condemns these men for their injustice towards the poor and their getting rich by oppression of the poor. Now, and this isn't anti-capitalistic. It's the fact that they had such a good life, but they were basically immoral. They were religiously apostate, so they they were pursuing their wealth not only in legitimate ways, but also illegitimate ways in taking advantage of the poor. These women are said to have taken part in oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. Now, so how were these women guilty? They were only, you know, the wives, their husbands were really the merchant class. They were told that they said to their masters, in other words, their husbands, and by the way, it was common for women you know, until modern, well into modern times for women uh, in certain countries to call their husbands and refer to them as master, you know, master so-and-so, because the word mister comes from master, you know, is related to the word master, and, um, or they would call them lord. So this is, you know, it's really not that old of an expression. Well, these women said to their masters or husbands, bring, let us drink. In other words, they kept demanding more, more pleasure, more things to enjoy, a better life, more affluence. They wanted the easy life and its luxuries. Now, obviously, these women did not steal or oppress the poor directly, but the injustices Amos speaks of were the source of much of that wealth. And these trophy wives, in demanding more affluence and more consumption, were also demanding, therefore, more oppression, more injustice, and more theft. They, too, were insensitive to what was happening to the poor through their husband's oppression. So they're held responsible because they wanted more of the good life that that injustice um, provided. Their affluence was at the expense of others. So these women were demanding more of what Amos condemned. So this picture of the beautiful women, the trophy wives of affluent society, turns to their judgment in verse 2. And it's very disturbing. 
inescapable judgment is promised. God swears by his holiness that this is what's going to come of them. These pleasure-seeking society wives would be amongst the first to be taken away. And it said they would be led away with fish hooks. Now, it's not clear exactly what that reference is, but there is, in fact, an Assyrian relief of which pictures captor, captives being led away by hooks through their mouths. Now, it's not clear whether this was a something symbolized on the relief or whether this is something they did or refers to you know, some kind of a shackle around their um, head. But it, it said that they, these women would be let out the breaches or the openings in the walls, which implies sort of that they would be the, amongst the first to go. And if these were beautiful, desirable women, uh, that makes sense. Um, that when the enemy broke, in other words, the enemy broke down the wall and these women went out through the holes in the walls. In other words, they were the first to be, some of the first to be taken away as uh, prizes of war. And it said that these women can only look before, that is, they can only look straight ahead. Now, it could be a reference to whatever these hook, fish hooks were, um, or that there was no looking for help. They, didn't, they couldn't look around them, they couldn't look behind because there was obviously no help coming to them. They were captives and they knew it, and they could only look straight ahead at their future, which was obviously very unpleasant. Either way, this prediction where beautiful rich women were taken away for use by the enemy remains a very disturbing image. Then in verses 4 and 5, Amos quotes God speaking contemptuously of Israel's worship. And he doesn't appear to be referring just to the Baal worship, which we've noted many times. There was Baal worship in Israel, but there was also a pseudo-worship um, of Jehovah. What he seems to be describing is well, a well-established religious practices and rules and procedures of, of uh, religious rites. Bethel and Gilgal are mentioned and their transgressions. These are two prominent religious centers. And again, we have to remember that even at its best, Israel's religious practices were always offensive to God because they didn't center in Jerusalem as God had commanded. They were supposed to go to this, be centered on the temple and they were not. And you, and you call when Israel was formed as a break off from uh, the kingdom of Solomon after Solomon's death, um, he created the calf cult of Jeroboam the first. And this calf cult was you go to these cities of Bethel and Dan and uh, you will worship Jehovah there uh, in the person of these uh, golden calves. And so all of the, the worship of Jehovah was corrupted from the beginning. And way back when we were after the death of Elisha under um, Elijah, um, you call that Jehu <coughs> killed Ahaziah, the last of the line of uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And he then killed all of the family of Ahab and Jezebel. And 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 31 says, 
about Jehu, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. And it says, in those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. The sin of Jeroboam was this calf cult. Uh, and he says, he got, Jehu got rid of a lot of the, the Baal worship. Officially, he got rid of Baal worship, but, and, though it continued amongst the people. But at least he ended the, the, the crown sponsorship of Baal worship. But he didn't get rid of the calf cult and tell the people that properly they needed to go back to Jerusalem to worship. And the reason for that was they, he, they didn't want the people going to Jerusalem because they think that would, might create a tendency for the people ultimately to want some kind of a reunification with the southern kingdom. And if they were reunified with the southern kingdom, which royal family would they pick? It would probably be the line of David because that was the one of prophecy and uh, the royal line of Israel had nothing to do with prophecy. Israel had continued many of the practices commanded in Scripture. We know that they practiced the feasts and sacrifices. We don't know how they did the sacrifices because they didn't have the, the proper priesthood for it. It's interesting that even though God condemns the calf cult, um, he does at least recognize those who still recognized him at various times. So even though it was never acceptable to him, he does recognize the fact that people did recognize him. Even the false worship was recognized, even if it was worthy of judgment. Uh, Israel apparently had made religion habit, and this is characteristic. Um, they created you know, customs and rules. All people tend to make religion into um, kind of a formality at times. Uh, sometimes it's easier as personal piety becoming a rule enforced on others. Uh, different religious denominations create traditions which become locked in stone, and nobody dare question those as, as being, you know, not mandatory. Um, that's just a general tendency of, of, of people, not just religion. And we know later the Pharisees made rulemaking into an art. And some of these rules are mentioned here. One is the daily sacrifices are mentioned. This probably refers to Numbers 28, 3, and 4, where a lamb was sacrificed every morning and every evening. Um, another reference is to the offering of tithes after three years. That's a little harder to know what that's referring to. Uh, because if they offered tithes every three years, as it's written in the King James, that really wouldn't be a strict practice because they should have done it on a more regular basis at least every year because if they, when they gather the crops, they should have tithed. When they uh, are har uh, rounded up the livestock and they counted the new lambs, they needed to uh, tithe every year. So that wouldn't have been a strictness, and that really seems to be what's talking about. They were really strict about rules. What's it... it literally says three years of days, and it's not clear what is referred to by three years of days. Some believe it may have referred to that they spent three days of the year on their tithes at the various religious festivals, and they were very uh, precise about 
spending some of their rejoicing tithe at the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Harvest and the ingathering. That, that most likely what it refers to. Some, so the King James refers to three years, but it's really literally three years of days. And so um, uh, some versions may actually just refer to three uh, days. Um, again, there's a reference to offering of leavened bread, and that's difficult because nowhere in the Old Testament was there any burning of leavened bread. It's not in the law. Leavened cakes were offered at times in peace for peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings, but they were never burned as sacrifices. The priests actually uh, consumed them. And, the, and they were free offerings, free will offerings, uh, but these appear, even though they were supposed to be free will offerings, there's a mention here that they were published or broadcast, which kind of makes it sound as though the people made a show of giving their gifts. Again, the people would have known what Amos was referring to, but because these, long, these practices are so long, it's hard to know exactly what's being referred to here. But the picture generally is a picture of worship and religious practice, which was very precise and somewhat ritualized, but it was devoid of any faithfulness to God, which is basically they're being condemned for. So they had all these religious rules and these religious rites, and they were very precise about obeying their, their rules and these procedures. They were, they were good at f the formal part of religion, but their hearts were not faithful to God. Now, this denunciation of their worship and their sacrifices and such is very similar to what Isaiah would say uh, to Judah, and Isaiah wrote maybe about 40 years or so, or, or probably left, more like 20 years after Amos. Um, and in uh, Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 15, uh, he said, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. He's referring to the people of Judah as as though they were people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's really referring to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayer, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. In other words, the formality of religion isn't what God really wanted. He wanted obedience. He wanted their faith to result in a, a way of life that represented submission to God. And Isaiah was telling Judah, much as what Amos is here in our passage, telling the northern kingdom of Israel, you're good at religious practices, but you're still apostate and you're a long way from faithfulness to God. Israel is said by Amos in verse 5 to uh, like their religion. It pleased them, but it didn't please God. Basically, what Israel was doing was they were choosing how they were going to worship God. In doing that, they were really dictating to God. 
They were saying, this is how we will worship God. And when man says, this is how we will worship God, he's implying, this is what God is going to get from us. We will decide how we worship God and how we serve God. And we think this is enough to, to please God. And God is saying, I'm not pleased with your religious rites. I'm not pleased with your religious worship outwardly because you're such a rebellious people. Verses 6 through 12 then reviews Israel's long-standing lack of repentance. He's in effect saying, your, your disobedience is not a very recent thing. This, this isn't a superficial thing that's just popped up recently. It's long-standing. And he's saying basically, God's coming judgment has not been without warning. And he gives five warnings, five judgments that they've completely ignored. And each warning historical you know past warning ends with the statement yet have ye not returned unto me saith the lord the first warning amos lists is famine which is described in the king james as cleanness of teeth and want of bread incidentally when the king james says cleanness of teeth that's a literal translation from the hebrew and it's a good expression sometimes literal translations from the hebrew kind of get lost because we express things differently in different periods of history. But cleanness of teeth basically says you had nothing to eat. You had no food to even dirty your teeth. And so I brought that to you. In other words, but they had no food with which to even soil their teeth. Still, we're told Israel did not return to God. Then the second warning was drought. Specifically, the drought came three months before the harvest, so the crop failed. The cro they invested the capital in the crop. They planted the seed, and yet as the crop was growing three months before the harvest, the rains failed, which the crop depended upon to mature, so they got nothing out of that planting. Their capital investment was completely lost. So it was not just a loss of food, but it was a great loss of capital. And God says, I, but I did make it rain on one city, but not another. And he says that how people were such lacking in water so that they would, people from a second and third city would go to the city that had water, and then there wasn't enough water in that city for all of them. But still he says, yet you did not return to me. A third warning was blight on crops. He mentions blasting or scorching, probably from hot desert winds from the east drawing up the crops uh, without rain. Mildew was probably some blight that infected the grain and caused it to not form or made it inedible or caused it to spoil. Palmer worms are likely locusts that devoured the vineyards and orchards. Then a fourth warning was plague. And he compares the plagues to the plagues on Egypt when God judged them. It says both men and livestock died, so much so that you could smell death and the decay in the land. And still, Israel didn't return to God. Amos is saying, don't think that this is, my prophecy is coming to you without warning. You've been warned over and over and over again. And when God didn't give you a final judgment, or when one judgment ended, you think, well, that's enough. We got by, and we don't have to serve God. We don't have to be any more faithful to God. He'll let us slide by as we are. The fifth judgment 
is, is somewhat vague. Amos refers to the overthrow of cities. Uh, literally, he says, I have overthrown among you like God's overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from the burning. Now, some believe this refers to earthquakes. In the first verse of this book, Amos said he prophesied two years before the earthquake. Some think that maybe he actually, he prophesied two years before a great earthquake, but he may have written this prophecy after the earthquake. So it, some people think it may refer to that earthquake. Others say the overthrowing the cities may refer to various wars and the besieging of, of cities that had happened a number of times in Israel's history. Still, despite being snatched from the fire by God, which is just, you know, we still use that expression, which means you were rescued, you were hopeless, you were going to be destroyed, but I rescued you. Um, suddenly, when you least expected it, still Israel didn't return to God. All these visitations by God, all these judgments, all these warnings, Israel ignored. After all, with the, with the possible exception of number five, the overthrow of cities, these were natural disasters. And today we still ignore natural disasters. Now, I think it's, it's very much a danger for a natural disaster. I think a few prominent, a uh, couple prominent uh, TV preachers after the uh, Hurricane Katrina said it was a God's specific judgment on that city for you know, their homosexuality or for one thing or another. Um, it certainly wasn't God's blessing, and it certainly wasn't an accident, but Jesus specifically tells us not to uh, attribute um, disasters to particular sins. And when he refers to something that's, you know, the, the incidents lost to history, except, you know, what Christ mentions in the Gospels, he says, when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed people, do you think their sins were any worse than yours? So don't point the finger at the particular sins of the people when something like that happens. It's a warning that all of you are fallible and you're all deserving of judgment, basically. So yes, natural disasters are a warning of the ultimate judgment of God upon all men. There are, but it's a general lesson. It's not something specific we can attribute to those people got it in the neck because it's a warning for all men that ultimately all men will be judged. So therefore, God says in verse 12, I'm going to do something to you. You ignored all these other warnings throughout the years, so I'm going to do something to you because, because I'm going to do something more, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. We've heard that expression before. It's often been used when, you know, in a movies or something when somebody's about to kill somebody, but it's not referring to God killing them. It's really much worse. Prepare to meet that God is prepared to meet him in judgment. And in fact, Israel, many of these Israelites who went through this Assyrian invasion and captivity, many of them probably would have preferred an immediate death to enslavement by Assyria. Certainly those rich trophy wives would have likely preferred death God's judgment was to let them fall into the hands of some very evil men. The reason for the inevitability of judgment is given in verse 13. And when you read it, it's, it's, almost, it's really a theological statement. If there's a theological reason why 
this judgment is certain because it sounds as though he's about to give a reason for their judgment and then he ends up going nowhere with the statement. But in reality, it's not a reason for, because of their action, but it's a reason because who God is. It says, the one who created the mountains, the one who created the wind, the, wind, the one who made days and nights and controls, controls all things throughout the earth, the one who reveals himself in scripture, his name is the God of hosts. That's the reason for the judgment. Now, the God of hosts, by the way, means the God of armies. God commanded all power in heaven and earth. And if you defy God, natural disasters will be the least of your problems. So the reason, the last verse is saying, they have to prepare to meet thy God is, God is God. God is who he says he is. That's the reason. <coughs> So that's really a theological reason for their judgment. In other words, you defied me over and over and over again throughout your history, and now you're rich and prosperous and you're flaunting it and you're oppressing others. I, I am who I say I am. I am the God of hosts. The one who did everything, that your, your creator, your sustainer, he's the God of hosts and he's had it with you. So it's really a theological reason. God is who he is. God is God and therefore you will be judged and at the final judgment all men will know God to be God the redeemed will know him as their as their God and Savior the reprobate will know God but as their judge let's pray our most good and gracious God and Heavenly Father Help us to remember that you are the God of hosts. You are the God of armies, that you are the ultimate God of judgment. And even though we, we often fail to see your hand in the events of history, help us to know that all history works for your purposes and all history culminates in your judgment of men. Help us to learn from your specific judgments as recorded in scripture that you will judge sin. Help us to, to respond to this knowledge by standing for righteousness in our own lives, in our families, in our, our way of dealings with other men. Help us to, to be just and help us to be merciful. Help us to, to deal with others in a way that shows your mercy and your justice so that we are not liable for, 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 justice, for, for, for judgment because of the injustice that we perpetuate. Help us to, to show your um, goodness by our goodness to others, uh, not in a vague, subjective way, but help us to, to obey you in word and thought and deed, and, and help us to conduct our, our, our lives and our, our uh, vocations in such a way that, that uh, we honor and glorify you and your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we ask for your blessing upon uh, each of us and your safekeeping hand in this coming week. In Christ our Savior's name we pray. Amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.